For those who don't know me, I'm uh, Pete, um, a deacon here at Church of the Cross. And I have this pleasure this morning to uh, speak to you about the presence of God and our dependence on the presence of God and how much we need it. When we talk about the presence of God, it reminds me of an article that was pinned to the back of the church I grew up in um, that some cheeky person had put up there, a satire article. Now this was an Anglican church in New Zealand, you know, rooted in the Church of England, so this was very much a jab at ourselves. The article went like this. The Almighty announces decision to leave Church of England. In a statement released Wednesday, the Almighty God announced his departure from the Church of England, effective immediately. After much deliberation, writes the Lord Post, I've made a difficult decision to leave the Church of England. The Church of England and I have had a long history, but recent difficulties have made it clear that it's time to part ways. Church of England spokesperson, Canon Andrew Wilson, responded in a prepared statement saying, The Almighty's decision comes as a surprise and a disappointment. God has been a very important contributor to our church, and his loss is certainly a blow. However, the Church of England has many other resources at its disposal, and I look forward to the Church's future, albeit without God. We wish the Almighty all the best in his future endeavors. Sometimes we treat the presence of God like that, like a, like a nice to have, like a, a good optional extra, a bonus when we can have it. But you know, we've got enough going on in our faith, enough sort of life tips for a fulfilled life, enough sort of friends and community, enough kind of meaty ideas to sink our teeth in, that if God was not actually present with us, you know, we'd be okay. We'd have stuff to do. And I want to contrast this with Moses and the people of Israel in our reading in Exodus 33. Because they had just had the golden calf incident, worshipping with these golden calves, and Moses and God were furious. And God says to Moses, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is the problem of a holy and perfect God and a sinful people. He is the God who cannot abide sin. He, sin. he will destroy them on the way. And instead of the people saying, well, let's part ways and we'll be fine with what we've got, the people mourned at this disastrous work. And they sent Moses back to God to petition on their behalf. And so Moses goes to God and he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. You see, Moses goes to God and says, The whole point of this people being different from the other nations is that we are the people whom God is with. We don't have a reason to exist. We don't have a reason to be a people if you are not right here with us. The promised land will not be the land you promised if you are not with us. You say that you will destroy us if you go with us on the way, but you know full well that if you do not go with us, the nations will destroy us. God, we need your presence. And God goes with us. You know, it's sometimes said that your worldview is not best described by the statements you're willing to assert 
but the difficult questions you're willing to wrestle with even when there's not a clear answer. And for Israel and the people of God at this moment, one of those questions becomes, how does a holy God go with a sinful people? How is a holy God present with a sinful people? And in the coming chapters after this interaction, we suddenly reach that point in the Bible which has been the downfall of many enthusiastic young Christian who says, I'm going to read the Bible from cover to cover. Because what we have quickly is long, precise descriptions of how to build a temple, how to build the tabernacle, how long to make the rods, how wide to make the curtains. And we get a number of chapters of that to end our Exodus. And for your reprieve when you finish Exodus, you get the book of Leviticus. A whole book dedicated to all the rules and regulations of the administration of this temple, how sacrifices are to be offered for the sin of people. The tabernacle, the tabernacle was the tent form while they're moving before they build the permanent temple in Jerusalem. The temple is the, the, the wrestling with that question of how God is present with us. And it's a matter of deep importance. As Christians, sometimes we, we struggle to know what to do with, with all these texts, but it's a big part of the, the Torah. A large chunk of the Torah, the Pentateuch, is dealing with this temple because it is about this very important question of how is God present with the people. It is not an optional question. And so let's look at that tabernacle for a second. We've got a diagram, we've got slides and a sermon, the church of the cross, the rector is here, we can do what we want. <laughs> so we have, we have the outside, and on the outside we have the, uh, the big burning altar, and then we have a bronze basin where the water is, then we have a curtain separation, and in the holy place, inside the tent, um, inside we have the table of the presence, which has the bread of the presence on it, we have a smaller altar of incense, and we have a seven branch lampstand, a menorah, and we have lots of good lights there, a separation. And then we have the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant are these, these beasts, these, these animals, these cherubim, images of these cherubim, which are like these four-legged beasts with these, these wings that, that spread out. And it's not necessarily obvious from a first pass reading this, but these cherubim actually make up the throne of God. This is the mercy seat from which the mercy of God uh, flows. And you can actually see in nearby nations like images of like a king on his cherub throne or other gods seated on the throne of cherubim. And of course we have in the Psalms where he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. So going back to the, uh, the tabernacle, we, we have this throne. And this kind of temple layout is actually not that uncommon among like nations of the area. But there's one really important difference. Because in every other nation, on that throne would be the image of the God. There would be a statue of bronze or stone or gold or whatever to manifest the presence of that God among their people. But the God of Israel is different. The God of Israel is the living God, and the living God cannot be imaged by dead things. So this mercy seat, this throne of God, is empty. God's presence is there, but not imaged by dead things. 
The temple is extremely important throughout the whole Bible. Yet despite its deep importance, because it's wrestling with this question of the presence of God with the people, the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is full of criticisms of the temple. We have in Psalm 51, you know, the temple is the place where, where the, the sacrifices are offered for the sin of the people. But Psalm 51 says, you do not desire sacrifice or I will bring it. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. Hosea 6.6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Jeremiah 7, the leaders of Israel are putting their, their hope in the temple. And they say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We know that we are saved. And Jeremiah says, you are not saved by the temple. That will not save you from the Babylonians. And as we move into the New Testament, we had our reading in our gospel reading today in John 2, where Jesus purges the temple and then says, tear this thing down, I'll build it up in three days. And when Jesus dies, that curtain into the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom, breaking that separation between the Holy God and the sinful people. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 21, when we get that vision of the, the heavenly kingdom, the city, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. The temple is this important wrestling with this question, but it's not the be-all and end of It's actually a signpost to greater realities than itself, than its physical presence. So many Christians, when reflecting on the significance of the temple for our life today, point to the sacrificial system and Jesus as the fulfillment of the sacrifice, the one whose blood truly cleanses us from sin. And that is absolutely fundamental. Hebrews reflects a lot on that. But I want to reflect on a couple of places that the temple itself, the building, is pointing to as a signpost other than that. I want to point to all of creation as a cosmic temple for the presence of God. And I want to point to our body as the temple of the Lord. So firstly, creation as a cosmic temple. I want to compare this image of the temple, if you can throw that up there. Um, I want to compare that with Genesis chapter 1. I want you to notice some things. I'm not going to read all of Genesis 1, but if you're a bit familiar with it, you can notice these things. Notice that we have the outside, the light area, where the sun reaches that. And then inside the tent is the darkness. And we have a separation between the light and the darkness. And we can call perhaps the, the light day and the darkness night. And notice how we have the greater light outside. The greater light, the greater burning altar to govern the day and the lesser burning altar, the lesser light, to govern the night. And we also have the stars, the menorah, those little lights scattered throughout the night. We also have the water pooled together, revealing the dry land. And as we move towards the pinnacle of this temple, we have the, the bread, the, the plant-based food. Remember in Genesis, God makes the green plants and then gives the plants for the animals for food. And as we go into the Holy of Holies, we have the animals, these beasts. And at the pinnacle of these animals, we have the image of God. You know, in this, this physical tabernacle, it's absent because the living God cannot be imaged by dead things. 
But in the Genesis creation narrative, we are the image of God. Male and female, he created us. In the image of God, he created us. There are other parallels as well. But what this points to is, is, is that this temple in the wilderness is actually a microcosm of the greater reality of the cosmic temple of all creation. The truth is that God is not confined to a little box in the desert, but the earth is full of the glory of God. The cosmos is thick with God. His presence is not confined. You know, before the uh, scientific revolution, people would see the presence of God, the presence of spiritual reality, everywhere, behind every natural process, every, every plant was a direct creation of God, every sunrise was, was made by His hand. And what happened in the scientific revolution is we got to describe all those natural processes with greater accuracy. We got to see their repeatability, their, their predictability, their consistency. We got to describe the processes under those processes under those processes. And alongside all that good and true knowledge came a presumption, an assumption that if something was natural and describable and repeatable and predictable, then it was absent of God. It was absent of spiritual reality. It was essentially dead. And we traded a cosmos haunted with the spiritual reality of God for an empty, dead universe. And so what religious people started to do is they would look for the gaps in the science and say, oh, that's where God must be active. In these special occasions that, that, that science hadn't explained yet, and God was put into all these little boxes that just got smaller and smaller and smaller as science explained more and more. And finally, this, the culmination of that thinking was in this the philosophy or theology called deism about 200 or so years ago, which said, well, there's one final box we need God to be in. And that is, how did this universe start in the first place? So God was confined, His presence was confined to this kickoff point that He set up the universe and its laws and then has nothing to do with it afterwards. God created a clockwork dead universe. He is not present in it anymore. And as Christians today, we don't subscribe on average wholeheartedly to this deism. We believe that God is present and active in the universe. But we confine him still to these special occasions, to these supernatural moments. We say, well, God was present when Jesus rose from the dead. God was present in these particular miracles. God was present in these, you know, two or three really special moments in my life where I just felt the presence of God in a special way or did this amazing thing. But other than that, God is not really present with us. God becomes that uncle at the family reunion who you see every few years but is not really present in your life. And this is built on an assumption alongside the scientific revolution. This is not a new concept and the response is not new either. This is Chesterton writing a hundred years ago. 
all the towering materialism which dominates the modern mind rests ultimately upon one assumption, a false assumption. It is supposed that if a thing goes on repeating itself, it is probably dead, a piece of clockwork. People feel that if the universe was personal, it would vary. If the sun were alive, it would dance. This is a fallacy. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children, when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be mere recurrence, it may be theatrical on we need to stop confining the presence of God to these special moments, to just those supernatural things. I believe in miracles, but God is present through this whole cosmos. This is the temple of God where His presence is to manifest. We, here in ordinary time in our liturgical calendar, need to find and know and notice the presence of God in the ordinary, the natural, the routine things. We need to see His hand pulling out every leaf from every tree. We need to see God's agency behind every sunrise. We need to stop believing that if God suddenly disappeared, that everything would mostly go on as expected. But we need to know the truth, that if God attracted His presence from this cosmos, it would quickly decay into chaos. These things happen regularly. We describe them with precision in science. But God's agency is there in every natural process. The cosmos is thick with God, and we need to cover it. So the temple is signposting all of creation as a cosmic temple, and we need to see God's presence in the ordinary and in the natural, not just the special and the supernatural. And secondly, the temple is a signpost to our body. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said, you know, my body is a temple, you know, maybe posted by someone on Instagram when they're doing their whole 30 smoothie purge detox fast or whatever it is. It's just like justification for treating your body well. And that's um, not a terrible usage of this, of this idea. And it is, of course, biblical. 1 Corinthians 6, it says, do you, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? And that sort of language is repeated multiple times throughout the New Testament. And this shouldn't surprise us. Back in Genesis 2, God makes the first prototype of humanity, Adam. He makes him out of the dust and then breathes into him the breath of life. In Hebrew, Breath and spirit, the same word, ruach, breathed into him and became a living creature, a receptacle for the spirit of God, a temple, if you like. And if you've been taught this like me, the way you've understood this is that, you know, okay, so God was in the temple, Jesus 
died for us, broke down the barriers so then uh, the Spirit could be in all of us, not confined to the temple, and Pentecost happened, and the Holy Spirit went out to all the people, and we are now all like little temples out there manifesting the presence of God in a special way in the world. And there's a lot of truth to that, but it has this big lens over it from our culture, which is a lens of individualism. That we in our isolated individual personhoods are a temple of the Lord. And that's not actually what the text says. Let's go back to the text. Do you not know that your body is a temple? It's not obvious in the English, but that word your is plural. That word body is singular. Do you not know that all your walls, singular body, is a temple? <laughs> your shared body. John chapter 2, our gospel reading. To destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. It took us 46 years to build this. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John chapter 1. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us, dwelt with us, templed with us. Friends, the human body is a temple in that the human one is a temple. The body of Christ is the temple of the Lord. And we, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We, the church, are the body of Christ and individually members of his body. Jesus, the second Adam, the second prototype of humanity, the truly human one, the true image of the invisible God, is the temple of the Lord. And we participate in that templeness in as much as we are members of His body, made into His likeness, formed into His image. This is not a solo project. This is what we do, to do together as the church. This matches our, um, our New Testament reading, where it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual temple, a spiritual house, a spiritual tabernacle. A stone out in the wilderness is just a stone. It's not a temple stone, and it's certainly not a temple. For it to be a temple stone, it needs to be built into the temple alongside other stones with Christ as the cornerstone. To manifest the presence of God in a special way, to fulfill our image, we need to be together as the church. One of the greatest tra travesties of modern Christianity is that we have undersold the church. We've turned the church into a useful tool, hopefully, for your individual faith. That if the church is doing what it's supposed to, it will help you in your personal faith. But maybe if you just find it more helpful to sit in your bed and listen to a Tim Keller sermon, that's probably fine too. Right? That is not the truth. The church is a spiritual reality. And without being members of the church, members of Christ's body, our faith makes no sense. We need to break down the presumptions of individualism and know that our body, not our bodies, our body is the temple of the Lord. It is the, the body of Christ of whom we are members. So in summary, we need the presence of God. It is not an optional extra. It is not a nice to have. 
And we can learn from the temple in the Old Testament, which points in a few directions. It points towards all of creation as this cosmic temple as we, as we strive to see uh, God's presence in the natural order of things. And it points to our body, the body of Christ being the temple. How we need each other and we need to be this body. One of you shared recently a story of our former uh, pastor, Mark, and they brought a friend to church who had been kind of going to church regularly, and that friend said, oh, it's good to Mark. It's good to be in church. Church is very important. And Mark said, it's not important. It's necessary. That's not how you make friends, Mark. But it is the truth, right? This is not some optional issue. And I just want to leave you with one final there's a reason why a lot of spiritual disciplines start with us noticing our breath. Our breath is a natural process that operates inside our body. And so I want to encourage you, it's like a practical tip, to sort of seek the presence of God as a matter of first importance. To start by taking time to notice your breath. Not believing that this is just the exchange of molecules and oxygenating blood, but it is God's very presence Filling you that he is making every breath happen and he is pulling up the toxins. That every breath is not just a natural thing, it is a natural thing and the presence of God. It is an encore of that first breath that God breathed into Adam. And as we focus on our breath, we know that we don't, if we don't breathe, it's not like we have a bad day or don't get all our tasks done. If we don't breathe, we die. As we focus on our breath, we can know that we do not need the presence of God like a good vacation that we hope to get every couple of years. We need the presence of God like the air we breathe. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, thank you that you are here with us, that the cosmos is fit with you. Help us to notice your presence as we come together as your body. And as we move towards consuming your flesh and blood, that we might be like your flesh and blood and members of your body united together as the temple of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name.